or life on this earth until our Savior return or you call us to yourself. We thank you for this time in his name. Amen. Do you ever wonder how much people of the world think about heaven? It seems to me that in this day and age there's many people who don't believe in God, so if there's no God, I'm not sure what you think about heaven. But for the people who do believe in God, there's a lot of deists around. A deist is someone who says that God made everything like winding up a clock and then let it go and stands aloof and watches what happens. And a deist, a man like Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of the United States Constitution, so on, was a deist. He even did a condensation of the Gospels. Interesting that he left out the resurrection. He was more concerned with the value of the moral teachings that can indeed be found in the New Testament as guidance for the new country. Heaven. Heaven. Do people think about heaven? Do people that you work with, that you walk with, that you know, do they think about their relationship to heaven? When I went to Sunday school as a boy, we sang this. Heaven is a wonderful place, full of glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. And then the men were supposed to come in with a baritone, I want to go there. <clears throat> is that your heartfelt desire? We think about heaven as a place, as a wonderful place, but I find it quite interesting that the way that the believer understands his relationship to heaven is actually very different from the way the world might think about heaven. And that's contained in that little song. Yes, it's a wonderful place. Yes, it's full of glory and grace. But what's the key thought there in that chorus? I want to see my Savior's face. That is to say, whatever heaven is, and we actually don't know a lot about it. Whatever heaven is like, the believer is not someone who obsesses over what it exactly is like. What the believer is looking forward to is to being with their Savior, to seeing their Savior. That is because the believer is in relationship with the most important person in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us. <clears throat> I find that um, I cannot really understand my Bible very easily unless um, the, the overall structure of it is, is made more clear. So I can recommend to you a Schofield Bible, and a Schofield Bible Schofield was a lawyer, lived in the 1800s, born in the 1800s anyway, and he um, was a clear expositor of what is called dispensationalism. And usually when people hear the, the, anything, anything that ends in I-S-M, what? Did you say it's an ism? Oh dear, I don't, I don't, I already don't like it. <clears throat> but it is a systematic theology it has had more influence on evangelical Christianity than any other kind of systematic theology in North America. And without that uh, framework to understand your Bible, 
Well, I would say that it's actually difficult to understand your Bible. When Moses gave the law, he explained to the children of Israel, the earthly children of God, what their relationship to heaven would be like. And that's a sobering thing. It's quite a sobering thing. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And while, I, while you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, let me remind you that this is the last book of the Torah. This is the last book of the teachings and writings of Moses. The very end of it may well have been penned by Joshua, but it, these are the books of Moses. This is the last book of Moses. This is a book in which Moses is giving them his parting words. He actually gives them the Ten Commandments again in the beginning of Deuteronomy. Um, and he gives them many warnings and many teachings. It's uh, at the end of it, he dies and God buries him. God literally buries Moses on Mount Nebo. And you have, therefore, um, sort of the, the thrust and important teachings of the law, because we are thinking of this dispensation or this age in which man is living under the law. It is the, the, the uh, period of time in human history under which man was under, he's always under something, under, in this case, under the law. And heaven gets quite a, an important place in this uh, Deuteronomy or second law, as you could call it. Now, in spite of the fact that you can read twice in Deuteronomy 4 that, uh, that you shall have no similitude, no similitude in verse 12 and in verse 15. When you think about God in heaven, there's something very important that God has to say. Don't make any kind of image about me. Don't imagine what I look like. Don't try to carve something or make anything that you think is some facsimile or something like me, to, even if, if, if it's well-intentioned. You think that it'll help you remember God? Don't do it. You think that it'll help you think about God? Don't do it. No similitude. No similitude. Yes, I am in a, a very distant place, we might say, and you, as the children of God on earth, look up to me, God, but you are not to think about uh, making anything to remind yourself of me or what I am like, but you are to lift up your eyes. What happens is, is that when you lift up your eyes unto heaven, you may be tempted to do things. Look at verse 19. At last thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all the nations under the whole of heaven. So we see at the beginning that th there is that aspect built into the human being to think of God into heaven and to be in relation to heaven in the sense of looking up. Come down to verse 26. It's almost as though heaven looks down. In verse 26 it says, I call heaven and earth 
to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And this, of course, was due to their repeated disobedience of the law, the law that had been given twice, the law that God had written with his finger in stone. They would repeatedly go against this law and the principles of the law, and as a result, they would eventually be dispossessed from the land that God had given them. And so it is as though I call heaven as a testimony, as a witness to you people, looking as if looking as it were looking down. There is looking up and there is looking down. Then we come to verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing, or hath been heard like it, that God had redeemed a people unto himself, that he had brought them through the Red Sea, that he had brought them through the wilderness, that he had brought them into this land. Has this ever been, ever been spoken of before? Has it ever historically happened before? It had never happened before. Go from one side of heaven to the other. So there's a, a sense of looking up. There's a sense of looking down in testimony. There's a sense of examination of the entire uh, knowledge of man, of the universe, of history that is before these earthly children of God. So there is consciousness with the children of God of heaven in this dispensation, the age of the law. And then we come to an interesting verse in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Out of heaven, verse 36, out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. He reminds them that they had actually heard God speak. What was the purpose? Well, no doubt in hearing, in having that experience of hearing the voice of God, there would have been a great fear, a great reverence, a great respect for God in hearing his voice. But is that enough? Is it enough for people to fear God? It's good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a good starting point. Do you understand something about heaven? That you should think of heaven? That heaven is watching you? Yes, that's a good starting point. In the case of these people, God had actually spoken to them. Remember that he spoke to you. You may have not heard God's actual audible voice in your life, but do you think that God has ever spoken to you in some other way? He's certainly spoken to me at various times in my heart in an unmistakable way. That does not happen very often, does it? But he is capable of doing that, especially if you know the Lord. But what we have here in verse 36 is an interesting thing. It is one thing to hear. It is another to be instructed. The purpose of hearing is to be instructed. What did the Lord Jesus himself say? He who has ears, okay, it went in, 
Let him hear. Let him take it in. The Lord Jesus wanted us to not only hear words to, 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 at, a, at a perhaps superficial level, to know what these words say. Yeah, lots of people know what these words say. Have they taken it in? Are their hearts instructed by it? Are they changed by it? That's another level. That's another thing. So I think that in a sense, this verse 36 is speaking to us of the day when the Lord Jesus would say that and the people of God would be people who not only hear but learn because it is the work of God in the heart to save you. It is the work of God in the heart to change you. In your relation to heaven, you might think of it, and the, and the man on the sidewalk might think of it, well, it's, a, yeah, it's up there, and yeah, God's up there, but I, I, I really don't have a grasp of any possible relationship to heaven or the one who lives there. But that's very uh, inadequate. To have such a concept of heaven that God somehow lives there. I don't know what his desire is for my life. I don't know what salvation is about. I don't know how to be saved. But God is up there in heaven. And heaven is looking down on what I do in the way that God looked at what they were doing. And I sin. I know that I sin. They sinned. They brought great trouble on themselves because of their sin. People who sin do bring trouble on themselves. Well, that's because there is the failure to take into the heart and to be instructed in the heart from God's revealed word. I'll turn over to chapter 10. The idea of heaven in chapter 4, you might say is, is indeed something like the man on the sidewalk's concept of heaven. Look up because heaven's looking down. Think about the breadth of it. Think about the testimony of it, perhaps against you. Heaven is up there. I'm going to point out something from the book of Luke shortly, which is most interesting. But lest you start thinking that you have a, a pretty clear understanding, O earthly children of God, about heaven, I want to point out something to you, God says. In verse 14, Behold the heaven that I have been talking about, and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. What? God is in a place that you cannot even conceive of. The heaven of heavens. That is not a place that you can look up to. That is not a place that you can conceive of. That is far beyond your imagination. God is saying there is a place where I am that is beyond your imagination. That's a sobering thought. Do you have a trivialized concept of heaven and of God? That is a very dangerous thing. We must know that God is infinite. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And that he is not some kind of Santa Claus in the sky. We are accountable to the God who is in the heaven of heavens, a place we cannot conceive of. An infinitely powerful God. He, he does exist and he is there. Your accountability to him is in proportion to who he is. And now you have a very big problem. God 
is the God of creation, of the heaven of heavens, and we are accountable to him, the infinite, all-powerful God who is beyond our ability to conceive. There was a great deal of reverence amongst the Jews as a result of Deuteronomy about heaven, a great deal of uh, respect, one might say, about heaven. You perhaps know that when the Masoretes who transcribed the Old Testament came to the name of God, they picked up a new pen and they wrote down the Tetragrammaton with a new pen. Such was their respect for God. If you ask a Jew, how do you pronounce that word, he would, say, he would tell you, I don't know. We don't speak it. We don't speak God's personal name. Sometimes we say Jehovah or Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, because in Hebrew and in Arabic, the vowel points are, are generally not included, so you have four consonants, and we add what we think might be reasonable vowels. And so we come to the very well-known parable of the prodigal son. And you will remember that parable in Luke chapter 15. You will remember that this boy did the unthinkable. And in Eastern culture, including Chinese culture, one does not speak of one's father's demise. In fact, in Chinese culture, it's a big problem to get somebody to devise a will, to make a last will and testament because it's not something you can talk about. Least of all with your own father. It's actually quite scary to be in a hospital bed in China because your children come to you and tell you all is well. Not necessarily, but they don't want to tell you. They don't want to tell you. He did the unthinkable. He's thinking about how much money he's going to get when his father dies. And he says, I want it now. This unthinkable, culturally unthinkable. When the Lord Jesus told this parable, the crowd probably went, oh, 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 unthinkable, horrible. Bringing up your own father's death and asking for the money now. And you know the account, you know the parable. He went off and squandered it in riotous living. And then what happened? He got down to eating the, the cobs of the corn that the pigs had left over. He said, the servants in my father's house eat better than this. What am I doing? This makes absolutely no sense. He plans a repentance. One might wonder whether a repent, repentance that is planned is much of a repentance. I will say this to my father. I have a script. I'm going to say these words. I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then he does come to his father, and he says to his father, I have sinned against heaven, in verse 21 of chapter 15, again, against heaven. You dare not say that you've sinned against God, even though you have. Yes, perhaps in a sense, heaven is looking down. Heaven is a testimony, is a witness to your behavior. No matter where you go, you go far country, near country, it makes no difference. You might say heaven is looking down. Heaven knows everything that you did. And there you are, rock bottom sinner, and you plan and write the script of your repentance. And all you can say 
is that you've sinned against heaven. Indeed, indeed you have. You've probably broken many of the laws given to you by Moses. And here we have the Father. And it's a fantastic juxtaposition. Who is the Father in this parable? Everybody knows who the Father is. It's God. Yes, you might have sinned against heaven. You're even afraid to speak of God. And, but what does God do with that repentance such as it is? God wraps his arms around that sinner. Marvelous. Marvelous. People like the phrase paradigm shift. What a paradigm shift. You had been sinning in a far country under heaven, agreed. What's needed? The embrace of the Father. The forgiveness of God. That's what you need. But that sort of points to something. That father is standing with his two feet on the ground of earth, giving repentance to that boy, that young man. That points to something that, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself represented. The Lord Jesus Christ himself represented the bringing here of God the coming here of God and the bringing here of forgiveness and repentance and of grace that we've been singing of. And so I come to my, my final passage at 12 noon. And, well, second, second to last passage. Can you imagine when you have scholarly religious men arguing with Jesus and you have Jesus essentially saying in John chapter 8 verse 23 you know the heaven the heaven that you all know about that you live under that you're conscious of because God's there I am from there what what did you say Jesus says, I am from there. Who is this? To believe in me is to believe in the Father. To know me is to know the Father. Well, how is that possible? I am from above, in verse 23 of chapter 8. And again and again. Verse 42, I proceeded forth and came from God. God's in heaven. Jesus is saying, I am from there, that place that you have been living under, that you've been conscious of, all you sinners, conscious of your sin under heaven, I am from there. You might say that it is a completely outrageous claim, except that it's true. The Lord Jesus Christ was from heaven. Now, <clears throat> we come to um, a fascinating passage in John chapter 14, and I'm going to close with this passage in John chapter 14. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, 
I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. <laughs> what is this? The Lord Jesus is teaching us about heaven and how to go there. Now, I go back to my song. Heaven is a wonderful place full of glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Now here's a verse in John chapter 14 that is very touching and very powerful and very amazing. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. His purpose is for you to be with him. That's his purpose. You want to see your Savior's face? I trust that that is the reality of your heart. That, that is your heart's desire. That's the deepest desire of your heart. You don't know a lot about heaven. What are these rooms? The Lord doesn't tell us. <laughs> we have no idea. The Lord with all his power is preparing something. Wow, he has a lot of power. He's preparing something for me. But that place, you might say, is secondary. The reason I'm doing it is that in drawing you to myself, you and I will be together. That's the best part. That's the best part. We may not... Uh, have a very clear idea of the glories of heaven. We can find some of them described in the book of Revelation. We may not uh, walk down the sidewalk very often thinking about what that place is like, even as Christians. But you know, that's okay. I trust that what is the actual reality of your heart, the actual testimony of your heart, is that you desire to see the Lord. Because what does the same writer tell us in 1 John? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now that is a wonderful hope. That is a wonderful truth, that we will see our Savior's face, and then we will be saved. You are, in a sense, partly saved, I spent some time with my sister this week who has cancer. This was diagnosed two weeks ago. She's been sick for six months. Diagnosed two weeks ago. And that's, why is that? Why do I have asthma? And, and so on and so on and so on. Well, that's because I have not yet received the redemption of my body. I have received the redemption of my soul, but I have not yet received the redemption of my body. That will happen when I see my Savior. Shall we pray? Father, as we go about our lives in our day-to-day -day dealings with others, help us to have dealings with you and to know that your Spirit guides, directs, instructs. Help our hearts to be instructable hearts, hearts that can not only hear but listen Help us to know that one day we will receive our full redemption when we see our Savior. 
Help us to walk in the joy of these facts. We pray for your blessing upon our time now, and we thank you for the food that we're about to receive. In your name we pray, amen.